14-year-old Cursor Jensen had a special passion for those in the animal kingdom. So much so, she planned on dedicating her life to treating them. She worked hard at her studies and dreamed of becoming a veterinarian. And when she wasn't doing homework, she was volunteering at a local vet clinic or tending to her horse, Commodore. It would be one spring day in early September 1983 that Cursor would take Commodore out for some exercise, but she would never return. Only one suspect has ever been identified, and police are certain he was responsible. But is this a case of tunnel vision, and an innocent witness is being unfairly prosecuted? Or did his deteriorating mental health hide a horrific crime? A crime that is considered one of the longest unsolved mysteries in New Zealand history. This is Curse's story. The day she disappeared, she was out riding Commodore. She knew, and I knew without us having to talk about it, that she needed to be home by about five. The horse was found um, wandering loose around the beach and near the main highway. Uh, And at six o'clock, the police are looking for and find the horse. So there's very little time for anything to happen. And and you'd, you'd expect in the normal course of events, the missing person would be there. Even if they were murdered, they, they, um, they would be there, somewhere. Cursa Mary Jensen was born December 15, 1968, to parents Dan and Robin Jensen. Cursa had a strict and traditional yet loving childhood. Her father, Dan, was an Anglican minister at St Augustine's Church, and her mother, Robin, was a counsellor at Colosino High School a school she would later attend herself. Cursa was the couple's second child. She had an older brother, Michael, and together the family lived in the semi-rural town of Napier, New Zealand. That strict and loving environment, as well as two working parents, taught Cursa and Michael the importance of responsibility early on. Cursa excelled at school in all of her classes. In 1983, when our story takes place, Cursa was in the second year of high school. Everyone who knew her would describe the 14-year-old as exuberant and kind, sweet but shy. Her mother, Robin, would later recall fondly, quote, When I think of her, I think of curls and bubbles and laughter and responsibility, generous and kind and putting others first, but so dedicated to what she wanted to do. She would have done anything for an animal, unquote. Cursa loved animals, especially horses and she would prefer the company of animals over her peers. She worked hard at school, determined to study veterinarian science at Massey University. Her greatest passion was horse riding and equestrian. She had her own horse, Commodore, who she was solely responsible for, and she was a respected member of the New Zealand Equestrian Club, winning several awards with Commodore. Throughout 1983, Cursor was volunteering at a local vet after school, and on weekends, she trained Commodore for the Hawke's Bay Royal A&P show, which was scheduled for the October of that year. She um, had got Commodore ready, had groomed him, had the saddle on and everything else, and then she called out, Bye, Mum, and well, bye, and I heard that through the door, and I said, Bye, sweetheart, and that was quarter to three. And at five o'clock, I started to feel quite anxious. 
And in my mind, I said, if she wasn't home by quarter to six, I was going to ring the police. So um, she wasn't, so I phoned the police and said, um, my daughter went out for a ride today and um, she's not home yet. And um, the next thing I knew was um, there was a policeman knocking at the door and there was also at the same time a message was coming through that a horse had been found. Thursday, September 1st, 1983. Cursor had previously arranged for a friend to go horse riding, but a rainstorm that morning changed the Jensens' lives forever. Cursor's friend cancelled their riding date, but then the sun came out and Cursor was still eager to tend to Commodore and give him some exercise at the beach. She went and saddled her horse in the paddock next to her home in Riverbend Road. She then said goodbye to her mother before heading towards Awatato Beach. This would be around 2.45pm. Unfortunately, this would be the last time Robin would ever see her daughter. This was a trip Cursor had made many times and the area was considered relatively safe. Even though we are talking about a semi-rural area, it was still a fairly populated area and you could see the beach from the highway so she wasn't isolated by any means at all. It was also the middle of the afternoon and the weather had cleared up so there was plenty of other people around enjoying the first day of spring. According to eyewitnesses, Cursor would be seen with Commodore at Abotado Beach between 3.30 and 4pm. One witness in particular, a man named John Russell, Russell would report to police seeing a girl matching Cursor's description with blood on her face whilst he was driving past the beach. This girl was talking to a middle-aged bald man who was standing next to a white utility vehicle with brown side panels, and the two seemed to be having an argument. Russell was reportedly so concerned about the girl that he turned around, and he came back to check that everything was okay. When he returned, the girl would allegedly tell Russell that she'd fallen off her horse, but her parents had been contacted and she was waiting for them to pick her up. So Russell drove off and headed back to his home in Hastings. This witness sighting would later come into questioning, but we will discuss that a little later on. Around 20 past four, two surfers nearby would later report seeing a girl who resembled Cursor walking along with a horse. She was leading the horse by its reins and not riding him. When questioned further, they both said they could not see clearly enough to know for certain if she had any injuries, but they didn't believe so. Another witness would report seeing a girl who looked like Cursor in a white utility vehicle with an unknown man. At 4.30, this witness would drive past the gun emplacement when he saw a white utility vehicle coming from the beach area. The driver was described as being a man in his 20s with brown hair, and he had his arms around the shoulders of Cursor, or a girl who looked like her anyway. Two other witnesses would support the idea that Cursor left the gun emplacement beach area around this time, because 10 minutes after this, two passing motorists would later report seeing an agitated horse, tethered to the gun emplacement, but no one was with him. Cursor was nowhere to be seen. So it appeared within that 10-minute period... Cursor or someone had restrained Commodore and Cursor had been abducted. Personally, I don't think she would have gotten into the car, even if she was injured. 
she adored Commodore, and I don't believe she would have left him alone. To me, the only way I see Cursor leaving behind her beloved horse was if she was forcibly removed from the area. At 5pm, her mother started to worry. It was not like her responsible and mature daughter to stay out past dinner time. Cursor always stuck to her curfew and she was never late. Family and friends were contacted to start looking for Cursor, but when no sign of her or Commodore at that point could be found, the Napier police were notified of her disappearance at 5.45. Robin's concern turned to panic when she was advised at 6pm that Commodore was found wandering along the highway. Around 14 miles away from their Riverbend Road home, there was no sign of Cursor anywhere. The only evidence left behind was some rope that was found at the nearby gun emplacement, a fortification from World War II. This rope matched the rope on Commodore's bridle. The Jensens denied the rope had belonged to them. It was obvious at some point the horse had broken loose. But what startled him enough to pull free was not clear at the time, and still to this day, almost 40 years later. Some blood stains were also found on the rope and on the concrete at the gun emplacement. This blood was later confirmed to be human. DNA testing would later show the blood from the scene was highly likely to belong to Cursor, but I could not find any reference to the blood being comprehensively determined either way. The search for the missing teen would continue until around midnight. At this point, due to the conditions, the search was called off for the night, with the promise they would return at first light. Over the following week, the search for Cursor Jensen would continue with the help with volunteers from the neighbourhood. Police divers were brought into the area to begin searching the Tetakari River and other waterways, along with a heat detector used to find bodies. The Napier Daily Telegraph newspaper put forward a $5,000 reward for any information in locating Cursor. This reward would increase in the months that followed to 31000 thanks to police donations. Clairvoyants and psychics also reached out to police to offer their assistance. But frustratingly for police, their efforts proved unhelpful. Thursday, September 8th, 1983, one week since Cursor's disappearance. Napier police made a video retracing Cursor's movements, which was shown on Eyewitness News right across New Zealand. Napier police also set up a mannequin dressed in the same clothing Cursor left her home in that day, along with a caravan in the centre of town for easy access for people who may have seen or heard something to do with the case. Unfortunately, there was no sign of the missing 14-year-old. You know, weeks of intensive searching around the area, there's no, there was nothing to say that she was there somewhere. You know, the time did come when I had to go and say, I'm sorry, we've done everything that we humanly can, and we cannot find your daughter, and I'm sorry, and I'm apologising for it. The most difficult thing I've ever done in the... In, 40 years of policing. I failed. The only theory police have ever considered is that Cursor fell off Commodore at some point and then met with foul play by person or persons unknown. Police found part of the horse's bridle and hoof prints on the beach next to the gun emplacement, very close to the Tatakari River. The police would do all they could to locate the white utility vehicle with brown side panels that John Russell and the other witnesses claimed they saw Cursor in on the day of her disappearance. 
they initially appealed for the driver to come forward, that he wasn't considered a suspect or person of interest, that they just wanted to question him about what he knew. The police then asked the public's assistance with this by requesting anyone who knew of a white utility vehicle to call through with the licence plate numbers. For the next month, police investigated and cleared more than 800 white utility vehicles, but no vehicle matching the description was ever found. The police then went back through the case file, double-checking they hadn't missed anything in the eyewitness statements. One in particular stood out to them as being peculiar. This became even more so suspicious when the background of the witness was uncovered. Because of this, there was only one suspect who held the police's attention for the duration of the investigation, right to this day. His name was John Russell, and he already had a conviction of rape. And he had identified himself as possibly one of the last people to see Cursor before she disappeared. John Russell was a middle-aged man who was employed as an orchid worker in the neighbouring suburb of Hastings. Russell had already served two and a half years for his involvement in a gang rape in 1970. However, it is important to note Russell had turned his life around following his release, and there was no further criminal charges against him, not even a speeding ticket. He was considered by his co-workers and friends as a quiet yet pleasant and well-mannered man, there was nothing in his behaviour for over a decade to suggest he may have been capable of committing another violent crime. Regardless, police found his story of driving five minutes more to turn around and check on a complete stranger unlikely. All the police needed to find was the evidence to prove their theory. Initially, the story that Russell told checked out. Russell stated that when he was heading through Napier on State Highway 2, he passed by seeing Cursor. Having that interaction with her, then driving over the Watangi Bridge at 4.30 before arriving home a short time later. This was confirmed by Russell's neighbours, but then pieces of the puzzle would come together that suggested maybe Russell wasn't being quite honest with his version of events of what happened that afternoon. Results of the forensic testing were returned 11 days later, and as we previously said, it was confirmed the blood found on the rope found at the gun emplacement was human blood, and this was the same rope found tied to Commodore. Pollens, spores and copper sulphate from an orchid spray was also found on the rope. When tested to samples taken from Russell's home in the orchid where he worked, these chemicals proved to be a match. Now, Russell would openly admit the rope was his, that it was from an old caravan awning that his employer had asked him to take to the dump. He said he kept a few pieces afterwards, but he couldn't explain how Cursor had gotten a length of the same rope in her possession and how it became tethered to her horse. Is it possible it fell out of his car and Cursor found it? I don't know, but it is possible. And then police found two strands of hair in Russell's car that did not belong to him. These were also sent for forensic analysis, with hair taken from Curse's brush. The results showed a strong statistical match. However, police would later admit this could be an accidental transfer after he stopped to check on Cursor to make sure she was okay. The police would ultimately test over 100 samples of fibres taken from Russell's home and went over his truck inch by inch, but police never found enough evidence to take the case to court. 
Besides the strands of hair found in his truck and the rope matching that found in Russell's possession, no blood or other traces of cursor were found in his vehicle or in his home. For his part, Russell would publicly proclaim his innocence and believed he was being prosecuted because of his history or because he came forward to help with the investigation. And there are compelling counter-arguments that suggest he was not in fact involved in Cursor's disappearance. As I said, there was no actual physical evidence that Cursor left with Russell that day, and we know Russell's truck and home were searched thoroughly several times. The time between when Cursor was last seen by other eyewitnesses and when Russell was seen returning home by neighbours was very short. We're talking about 10 to 15 minutes here. It just isn't enough time to abduct Cursor, restrain Commodore, then murder Cursor and hide her body. And he would have had to have knocked Cursor unconscious because, as I said, I don't believe there was any way, any situation where she would have voluntarily left her horse. And given Cursor was a responsible, level-headed girl, her mother Robin has said she would not have gotten into a car with a stranger. And there was nothing to suggest Russell or Cursor had met before her disappearance. Russell's mental health began to deteriorate in the months following Cursor's disappearance, and he would become increasingly confused in his memories of the incident, contradicting himself in police interviews. In 1984, he would be committed to Lake Alice Psychiatric Facility indefinitely. In 1985, Russell escaped from the Lake Alice Psychiatric Facility, first going to St. Augustine's Church, where Cursor's father was a minister, and then the Jensen family home. He begged Dan and Robin to believe him, that he had nothing to do with their daughter's disappearance. Russell then appeared at the police station, demanding to speak to lead detective inspector Ian Hollyoke. He was reportedly in a distressed and confused state. He was mumbling to himself phrases like, could I have done it? And confessed to Detective Hollyoke that he was concerned he had actually killed her. Detective Hollyoke would later state in media interviews that he believed Russell no longer really knew what happened that day, and he may have blocked out what really happened from his consciousness, a kind of forensic amnesia. Quote, Plenty of people do that, hide the horror in their mind, and the longer time goes by, you convince yourself you really never did it. Unquote. But given that Russell was not making any sense and he was clearly suffering from a mental break, he was soon returned to the psychiatric facility. After his marriage fell apart, Russell was seriously injured in a car accident. I've read some speculation that it was a failed suicide attempt. Regardless, shortly after, he would return to the Lake Alice Psychiatric Facility, where he would remain until just before his death. 1992, four weeks after his release, Russell suicided by hanging himself at the Hastings guesthouse, unfortunately leaving behind no note giving his reasons for ending his life. Was his guilt about what he had done, haunting his memories and driving him slowly insane until he could no longer live with it? Perhaps it was fear and depression from being falsely accused by police, trial by media, or was it the guilt from knowing that she was hurt and he could have helped more, but in the end he drove away only for her to vanish without a trace? In 2009, Curse's mother Robin left her job as a school counsellor and opened her own private practice. 
She wanted to provide a place where parents of murdered children could connect with others who had been through the same trauma, to be able to talk and ask questions, to have therapy and access to group work. Robin also completed her master's degree exploring this area of victim support. Her thesis titled, The Grief Experiences of Parents Who Lost a Child Through Violent Crime. A memorial plaque was erected and a native tree planted at the site of Curse's disappearance at the gun emplacement. St Augustine's Church, where Curse's father Dan was the minister at the time. This church erected a chapel in dedication to Curser and the Jensen family. Tragically, in 2006, the memorial tree was damaged by vandals. The community did work together to clean up the area. And this tree, as well as the chapel, still stand in Curse's honour to this day. Robin said at the press conference, quote, She's my daughter. She's just so precious to me, and the longer it goes, the harder it is, because she may not be found. To be able to locate her and put her in a decent place to rest forever is vitally important to me, unquote. The money raised by the Napier Daily Telegraph newspaper and the Napier police to aid in the search for Cursor they would eventually work with Massey University to create a scholarship in Cursor's name. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, Cursor loved animals and wanted to desperately become a veterinarian and study veterinarian science at Massey University. This scholarship is offered to students entering their third, fourth or fifth year of the Bachelor of Veterinarian Science degree. The scholarship takes into account financial need as well as academic achievement. The hope is another passionate person can live the dream that Cursor never got the chance to. So, what happened to Cursor Jensen? It is possible Russell was not sharing accurate information, whether he was lying or simply confused, but it is possible that despite the evidence showing otherwise, Maybe him passing by that day and then the rope being used to restrain Commodore and Curse's hair found in his car, maybe it's all too much of a coincidence and he did kill her. And then because he has since died and didn't leave a suicide note, he took the secrets where she is to his grave. It does not seem that the Jensens were in fact notified that she was hurt, but did she lie to Russell about the situation? And if she did, why? Or was she the one that was lied to by who she thought was a good Samaritan? Or was Russell mistaken? I don't know. One thing is for certain, though. Whoever took Cursor, it was clearly a crime of opportunity. Cursor was not usually alone during her rides, nor did she always ride the same route, or have a scheduled time or day for her rides with Commodore. There was no way Cursor's abductor could have known that she was going to be there that day at that time at that place. Robin has stated she will never give up on the search for her daughter and has defiantly stated in media interviews that she will keep going until she gives Cursor a proper burial. She has kept Cursor's old riding jacket and her pins from the Wakatani and Hawke's Bay hunt clubs. Cursor will be buried with these items if, when, she is found. Quote, A mother does not forget her child. I could no more forget Cursor than fly to the moon. She's a part of me and she's very important. A mother does not forget her baby. Until the day I die, I'll keep hoping. I'll never give up hope. Unquote. To be able to locate her 
and put her in a decent place to rest forever is vitally important to me. Cursa Jensen was 14 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was 5 foot 5 and of slim build with curly shoulder length dark blonde hair and blue grey eyes. If Cursa is still alive today, she would be 53 years old. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Cursa Jensen, please contact the Napier Police on 06 831 700 or Crime Stoppers on 0800-555-111. If you have your own thoughts and theories on the case we discussed today, or any case we talk about on Stolen Lives, please search Stolen Lives on Facebook, like the page so you don't miss an episode, and join the discussion group to talk about your thoughts and theories. You can also talk to us on Twitter, search lives underscore stolen or on Instagram, Stolen Lives Podcast. If you like what you heard today, we would appreciate it if you share this episode on your social media of choice and subscribe and leave a positive review on your podcast app. Today's episode was researched and written by me, Ali. Hosting and production was also by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.